The History Channel original podcast. History This Week, November 4th, 1605. I'm Sally Helm. The king's men are conducting a search. They make their way through the storerooms and cellars and vaults that cluster around and beneath the Palace of Westminster. That's the building where the English Parliament meets. They're coming back into session tomorrow after a break, and it's going to be a major affair. The king will be there, and his family, and his advisors, and all of the country's leading politicians. Which is why the king's men are so worried. They've gotten a tip in the form of a mysterious, anonymous letter. The letter says that when all those important people gather tomorrow at the House of Lords, something bad is going to happen. Security at the Palace of Westminster at this time is not extremely tight. The House of Lords is right up alongside taverns and wine stores and baker's shops and private apartments. It wouldn't be crazy to see some chickens wandering by. And in the afternoon, the searchers check out a storeroom that's directly underneath the House of Lords. It has old stone walls with vaulted archways set into them. There's random detritus scattered around, little bits of wood and stone. And it's full of firewood. As lots of cellars and storerooms are, you needed tons of coal and firewood in those days to heat your house. It does seem to be kind of a lot of firewood, but still, nothing too strange. The searchers greet a tall man, a servant, who's hanging around the cellar. And then they're on their way. But when they tell the king about all of this, he's suspicious. Go search it again, he tells them. So they return to the cellar around midnight. And there they find that same tall man, the one they thought was just a servant. This time, he's wearing a hat, a cloak, and some boots with spurs. He's dressed like he's about to go on a long journey, but it's midnight. Something isn't right. They arrest this man, tie him up with his own garters, a piece of clothing he would have used to hold up his socks. And then, brooding around behind the firewood, they see gunpowder. Barrel upon barrel of it. And in this man's pocket, they find fuses the king's search party starts to put the pieces together, and they realize they've narrowly avoided disaster. Today, a thwarted plan to blow up Parliament. What brought a group of conspirators together in a plot to kill the king? And in the 400 years since, How has the story of the tall, mysterious Guy Fawkes come to stand in for something else entirely? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Remember, remember the 5th of November. It's an old English folk verse you may have heard. And England does remember. November 5th is celebrated every year as a holiday. It normally involves a bonfire, fireworks, and the burning of Guy Fawkes in effigy. That's James Sharp, emeritus professor at the University of York. And the Guy Fawkes, whose figure gets thrown into the fire every year, he was the man in spurs guarding those barrels of gunpowder back in 1605 one of the key conspirators in the plot to blow up Parliament. That plot comes out of a very turbulent period in European history. Now you, with remarkable understatement, describe this as a turbulent period. In the Netherlands and in France, there were full-scale religious wars going on. The battle lines were essentially Protestants versus Catholics. Protestantism was newer. Catholicism had been around for a long, long time. And in England, for the past several decades, the pendulum had been swinging back and forth between these two visions of Christianity. All set off by... The marital problems of Henry VIII. This is back in 1533. King Henry, who is a Catholic, wants a divorce. But it's not easy to get one. To get the marriage annulled, you needed papal permission. Now, this permission was not forthcoming. So what Henry did was deny papal authority, set himself up as the head of the Church of England, and leave the way open for an increasingly Protestant style. Henry's successor, King Edward, continues to bring Protestant reforms into the Church of England. But Edward's successor, Queen Mary... She is hardline Catholic and burns about 300 Protestant martyrs. To recap... If you're an English latter last before King Henry, your country is Catholic. After Henry, Protestant. Under Mary, Catholic again, and you can be killed for being Protestant. And then when Mary dies, England gets a Protestant ruler once again, Queen Elizabeth I. She doesn't much trust the Catholics in England. The Pope has declared her an illegitimate ruler. So her subjects are free to depose her. Now, this has the effect of, in English Protestant eyes, making every Catholic a potential traitor. Tensions are extremely high, especially after Catholic Spain tries to invade England and overthrow the Queen. Sharp told us the feeling within the country at that time is kind of similar to the feeling in the U.S. during the Cold War. Protestants felt... There is a foreign power that's hostile to us, which has representatives in England. This was an alien organization. It was opposed to our values, but it was going to come and get us. In response to this perceived threat, Elizabeth makes life increasingly hard for English Catholics. She doesn't trust them, and they have very good reasons not to trust her. Skipping Protestant Church of England services will get you a hefty fine. Laws make it illegal to be a Catholic priest. In fact, it's treason, punishable by death. 
This is the worst period for Catholic persecution in England. Catholics are facing the threat of torture and death. And in response, some of them make the decision to go underground, practice their faith in secret. Most English Catholics want a quiet life. Mark Nichols is a Cambridge University professor and an expert on the gunpowder plot. He said the large majority of Catholics during Elizabeth's reign are just keeping their heads down. At the same time, there's a small number of Catholics who want nothing to do with the Protestant regime. They see any contact as a dangerous, slippery slope towards the further erosion of Catholicism in England. And it is from that group that the gunpowder plot has come. Elizabeth dies in 1603, and her successor, King James, is a real intellectual. He's famous for the King James Bible, an English translation of the text that will become very important and widely adopted. And he's also a peace-loving man. He'll be known as Rex Pacificus, or the Peacemaker King. One of the very first things that he does as king is to end the 20-year war against Catholic Spain. For many English Catholics, this is good news. By ending that war, English Catholics can again be loyal English men and women. Instead of being seen as suspected allies of a Catholic foreign enemy. But for the group of Catholics who were worried about the slippery slope towards Protestantism, this is not necessarily good news. For one thing, it eliminates the possibility that Spain might invade and turn England Catholic, which they want. And also... Because it destroys the unity in persecution among the English Catholics. If English Catholics see a way to remain Catholic, but to remain loyal to the king and to essentially continue to play a part in English provincial political life, then why wouldn't they take it? So, some Catholics begin to organize a resistance. One of them is a man named Robert Catesby. He's from a landowning family, from the upper reaches of society. Catesby had always been a Catholic, but towards the end of the 1500s, he had turned to his faith with a new intensity, possibly because of some deaths in the family. And he had also been involved in a failed uprising against the crown in 1601. As King James's rule begins in 1603, like other Catholics who will not compromise with the state, he's laboring under the, the difficulty of being shut out of local offices. He's tired of being relegated to the outskirts of society. And he begins to gather other Catholics who are suffering in the same way and who want a change. Some of them certainly wish to see a Catholic state. Some would be happy with religious toleration. But what unites them all is a wish to be revenged on the people who have marginalized them, who have sidelined them in English society. That is the mood on May 20th, 1604, when the gunpowder plotters first meet. They're at a London inn called the Duck and Drake. It's Sunday. In the next room, there's a priest celebrating Mass and men taking communion. Robert Catesby has gathered there with four of his allies. There's John Wright. He's more a man of action than a man of words. Thomas Winter. Who's, if you like, the opposite. He's more intellectual character. He's more philosophical. Another Thomas, Thomas Percy. Catesby's 
associate in command. He was the man who perhaps had the greatest status among the plotters. His cousin is an earl who's got connections to King James. And all of these men are connected through ties of family or friendship. But the last plotter, the one whose name has become inextricably linked with the plot itself, he's more of an outsider. Guy Fox. Fox had gone to school with John Wright, but he'd been out of the country for the last decade, fighting on behalf of Catholics in modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands. Because of that... He knows a lot about military matters. He knows how to dig and blow up a mine. And the other great advantage he has to the plotters, to Catesby in particular, is because he's not been around for the last 10 years, he's an unknown face. He can pass without comment. On this day in May 1604, this group of five plotters gathers in a room that Catesby is renting at the Duck and Drake. Catesby gathers them together, starts talking about how rotten things are in England, how good, true, honest Catholics should expect something better. Thomas Percy then speaks the memorable line, shall we always talk then, gentlemen, and never do anything? And that is Catesby's cue. His plan is, of course, to dig a mine, dig a tunnel under the medieval House of Lords, the upper House of Parliament, and blow up the mine at the state opening of Parliament when the king and his family and everyone else who counts in England are gathered together. It's a pretty straightforward plan, but also incredibly radical. A few of those present draw almost audible gasp of astonishment. But apparently, they didn't take too much convincing. Some of them are a bit worried about shedding the blood of fellow Catholics who might be in the House of Lords at the time. Catesby says, look, basically, you can't make an omelette without cracking eggs. You know, you've got to press on. They seem to accept that argument. The plotters take an oath of secrecy. Then they bring in the priest who happened to be in the room next door and take the sacrament. And then that's how the plot begins. The plot itself is simple. But what exactly would happen after they blew up Parliament wasn't totally figured out. The gunpowder plotters did have a follow-up plan. They were going to seize the king's nine-year-old daughter, proclaim her queen, and rule through her. But they hadn't chosen who would become the puppet master of the nine-year-old queen-to-be, so it wasn't totally clear that they really could create a Catholic government. And when they start to work on the plot in earnest, they run into a more immediate problem. Supposedly, they start digging this tunnel under Parliament, but... They find it very hard going because the old medieval foundations of the House of Lords are pretty thick. But in an early stroke of luck, Thomas Percy's cousin, the Earl of Northumberland, promotes him to a new position just a few weeks after they hatch the plan. He becomes... A member of the King's bodyguard. It's a, a sobering thing to remember. This plotter has been let into King James's inner circle. Pretty soon, a storeroom just beneath the House of Lords becomes available. It's owned by the keeper of the king's wardrobe, and no one raises an eyebrow when Percy decides to rent it or to bring along a caretaker. Guy Fawkes was posing as Percy's servant. He was going under the alias of John Johnson. 
very unoriginal alias, but that's the one he chose. Guy Fox, aka John Johnson, is now installed in a storeroom directly beneath the House of Lords. Many people are a bit surprised at the fact that you could, as a private citizen, rent a basement of the House of Lords. But back in the 17th century, the Palace of Westminster was a higgledy-piggledy mix of ancient buildings, private lean-to dwellings. So you've got public areas like Parliament alongside privately owned, privately rented properties. That's one problem solved. But they still need to pack this storeroom with dozens of barrels of gunpowder. And how are some regular Englishmen to get their hands on so much gunpowder without arousing suspicion? Again, we're back to the end of the war with Spain. James Sharp again. The war with Spain had required a lot of gunpowder. And it was just recently over. This meant there was a lot of gunpowder on the black markets. So Catesby was able to acquire the gunpowder, put it into barrels that could have been containing anything. The plotters gather the gunpowder in small batches over a series of months. In the end, they have 36 barrels in total. These were taken across the Thames. They were hidden under the Houses of Parliament uh, in the storeroom they'd acquired. And the gunpowder was, was covered with firewood. Meanwhile, They've surreptitiously gathered the support of a few more Catholics, bringing the total number of plotters to 13. And finally, late October arrives. Parliament is set to convene in just a few days. Guy Fox, aka John Johnson, is in the cellar, ready to strike. But then. There's a very famous uh, element in the plot. A, you know, crypto-Catholic lord, I mean, a, a lord who, although being allowed to maintain his position, has uh, strong Catholic sympathies, has a letter uh, a few days before the 5th of November. According to his story, it was left by a mysterious man with one of his servants at the door of his house. This lord opens the letter. Which is very non-specific, but which warns him that something bad is going to happen in Parliament on the 5th of November and suggests he doesn't attend. The letter is anonymous. Historians still aren't sure who wrote it or what exactly their motive was. I think people have risked their sanity trying to work out who the author is. But whoever the author and whatever the motive, this letter will be the downfall of the gunpowder plot. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This mysterious letter arrives just days before the fuse is set to be lit in that storeroom beneath the House of Lords. And the nobleman who receives it is himself Catholic. Mark Nichols told us he was part of that group of Catholics who just wanted to blend into English society and live a normal life. So what does he do as a loyal Englishman? He takes the letter along to the Privy Council. If you like, the cabinet of the day, the people who sit closest to King James. James's advisors aren't quite sure what to make of the letter. It's fair to say that anonymous apocalyptic warning letters to statesmen threatening something horrible, but not being specific. They're not unknown today, and they certainly weren't unknown then. But what to believe and what to disbelieve, that is always the problem for security forces and for the state. The council decides, let's just wait for King James to get back from his hunting trip. Then he can make a call. In the meantime, the gunpowder plotters get wind of this letter, and they have to decide, should the plot go on? The gunpowder plotters gambled everything on the fact that the Privy Council and the King would simply put this down to yet another, if you like, crank call. They hope that... Because it was an anonymous letter, because there was no signature, because, you know, it was very unspecific anyway, that the King and the Council would not change their plans. And so the plotters decide to follow through on their own plan. The stakes are so high that they're already gambling their lives. They might as well see it through. And Guy Fawkes is ready to put his head in the noose, as it were, and be in the cellar. And they decide that they're press ahead. King James returns from his hunting trip on November 1st. His advisors tell him about the letter, and he says, we'd better search the area around Westminster, just to be safe. On the afternoon of November 4th, they find... John Johnson in the cellar, but all they can see is a great pile of brushwood and timber down there. And this chap who is Thomas Percy's servant, nothing too surprising. Thomas Percy, after all, is the king's bodyguard. But when the men report back to James, he has them do another search. That's when, around midnight, they find Guy Fox in his coat and hat and spurs. They push aside that brushwood and see the barrels of gunpowder. And then the gang's up. Guy Fox, who still says his name is John Johnson, he's taken into custody and interrogated. He's refusing to name his friends. It takes a couple of days before even the basic details, even Guy Fox's true name, are known to the investigators. When the other plotters get word of Fox's arrest, they flee London for the countryside. And though the king's men have foiled this plot, they're still shaken by what's happened. It's actually a massive embarrassment to the king and his ministers that they have come so close to a disaster on this scale. One way of deflecting attention from the failings of state security is to give credit to God for delivering Protestant England from this dastardly plot. And so the next night... The 5th of November, basically the ruling elite in London, tells London citizens 
to celebrate with bonfires and bells, so long as the celebrations are done in an orderly fashion. They don't want any riots and mayhem. They want a solemn and respectful thanksgiving. To thank God for delivering them from this Catholic plot. So it's an occasion for great celebration and also for affirmation of Protestantism. James Sharp again. Large amounts of wine and beer are distributed to the population and certainly they like bonfires. One group distributing wine to the celebrating Londoners... Foreign ambassadors, in particular the French and Spanish ambassadors... Who are trying to distance themselves from the plot right away. You're going out and saying, isn't it terrible, and this sort of thing. Europe is just making peace after decades of war. France and Spain want to be careful not to start another. And King James is surprisingly careful, too. In the immediate aftermath, the government is really playing it very, very cautiously. James makes a statement to Parliament a couple of days after the plot is discovered, saying, yes, it's dreadful, this is awful, it's the worst plot we've ever known, but large numbers of my Catholic subjects, although they have fallen into the errors of popery, uh, they are loyal and obedient, and there is absolutely no evidence of foreign involvement. The next day, one of James's bishops gives an official sermon saying essentially the same thing, and adding... Interestingly, that extreme Protestants are as bad as extreme Catholics. The messaging is clear. We don't want a Catholic purge on our hands, and we don't want to launch an international war. This whole thing can be put at the feet of a tiny group of Catholic radicals. The King's men do eventually identify the rest of the plotters, and local militias soon track them down. On the 7th of November, a group of the plotters are at a place called Holbeck House in the English Midlands. They have tried to get a Catholic rising going. The local Catholics want nothing to do with it. A local sheriff and 200 of his men surround this house. There, many of the remaining gunpowder plotters are killed in a shootout. Another dies in prison, and the rest, including Guy Fawkes, are executed publicly through hanging, drawing, and quartering. It's a horrific way to die. That same month, January 1606, Parliament does take the opportunity to reaffirm that all this is just proof of how much God loves Protestants. They declare that every November 5th, in every parish church of England, the minister must lead a service celebrating God's deliverance. That's how the date begins to morph into a national holiday. The 5th of November. Remember, remember. Part of the abiding memory of the gunpowder plot depends on our imagination of what would have happened. Mark Nichols again. That what might have been is a very potent weapon. That's what often keeps people awake at night. And if you think about it, it's still a pretty scary prospect today. In the years soon after 1605, Bonfire Night serves as a reminder of that what if. At first, the religious clashes that gave rise to this plot are still really potent. You see Bonfire Night respond to the temper of the times, taking on a certain edge when a section of Protestant society feels threatened by Catholicism. There are violent anti-Catholic attacks, civil unrest, 
But as time goes on, the religious connection fades. In the 1820s, people in the town of Guildford start using November 5th to wreak general havoc. They call themselves the Guildford Guys. One observer noted, the whole town was as if in a state of siege. In 1930s Oxford, November 5th brought confrontations between, quote, the town and the gown. Undergraduates stole helmets off the heads of policemen while townspeople tried to knock graduation caps off the heads of the students. And in the present day, the holiday is mostly an excuse to light off fireworks and set bonfires. Most 5th of November celebrations have no reference to religion whatsoever. Guy Fox, the man who took the fall, his name is remembered through it all. The scene of his capture is so dramatic that it gets told and retold and passes into folklore, even though Robert Catesby was the real mastermind. Over time, Fox becomes a symbol of his own. I think there is a respect for the totally misguided courage of a man like that. He was the man who was going to actually blow everything up. In the centuries since the gunpowder plot, political pamphlets and retellings on the stage have cemented the popular image of Guy Fawkes. He's a tall man in a cloak, wearing a black top hat with a notably pointy mustache and beard. That image was later turned into a mask, which was famously used in the comic book and film V for Vendetta. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. The story's protagonist, V, wears the image of Fox throughout his crusade to bring down a fascist government. But 400 years later, an idea can still change the world. The mask has been used by protesters in the Occupy Wall Street movement, by members of the hacker group Anonymous. It's become a symbol of anarchy. It is a fascinating example of the way that the gunpowder plot manages to reinvent itself in national memory as time goes on. Yeah, I think he's just remembered as some sort of folk hero. James Sharp again. Which, like a lot of folk heroes, is divorced from the reality. Most English people would only have a very hazy knowledge of what the plot was about. If they were to actually sit down and consider Fox's actions they might see them in any number of ways. This was an act of terrorism. If it had come off, it would have been a spectacularly successful act of terrorism. But conversely, I mean, one does have, through you know, 20th, 21st century sensibilities, considerable sympathy for people who are suffering largely undeservedly. Guy Fox had his own very specific reasons for being in that storeroom, along with 36 barrels of gunpowder. But despite all of the remembering that has happened over the years in his name, those reasons have largely been forgotten. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweekathistory.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. We would love to hear from you. 
Special thanks today to our guests, James Sharp, author of Remember, Remember, A Cultural History of Guy Fawkes Day, and Mark Nichols, author of Investigating Gunpowder Plot. This episode was produced by Julia Press. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn, Jesse Katz, and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.